Okay, Genesis House, why don't we uh, turn to 2 Peter? 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. So 314, uh, can we stand and read as a church? Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures, to their own destruction. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men, and follow from your own steadfastness. For grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to, be, and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray as a congregation. Father, we are uh, thankful for your word every time we come to it. We are just amazed by the wisdom that's contained within it and the guidance for our lives. May you uh, speak to us today as we deal with yet another subject that I know you would want us to hear and uh, prepare our minds to receive it and to understand the things that you're saying. Uh, guide me into truth and go before me uh, as always in Christ's name. Amen. morning. Um, today marks the end of yet another book completed at Genesis House. Up to date we've done Exodus, John, and 1st and 2nd Peter. So just 62 books to go and I'll have completed my task. <clears throat> Six years, four books. So I, I think I'll be about a 205. I'll be older than Abraham when I'm done this uh, Bible. So but since it's been so long since we've been in Second Peter, due to various circumstances like uh, me going to school and uh, different guest speakers and uh, all sorts of crazy and fun stuff, um, but beneficial stuff, uh, we haven't been in the book for a while. So I thought I'd remind you where we left off. Uh, through the entirety of chapter 3, Peter had one message in mind for us. And that was that the Lord is coming back. Uh, the second coming of Christ was a guarantee. And you'll remember in the original context, this was an important message that the early church needed to hear based on their situation. False teachers had been going around different parts of the Roman Empire, infiltrating their churches, teaching the congregate members that the second coming of Jesus and his pending judgment was a hoax. Now, this was, would have been a concern, of course, for Peter on many fronts, but one of the biggest reasons was 
this message of him not coming back, meaning there's no message of judgment, was a really good foothold for these false teachers to gain in a church. Because if you knew that God wasn't going to judge, that would free you up to live any moral, immoral lifestyle that you wanted to because there was no judgment to be had. So these, uh, these false teachers could easily promote an immoral lifestyle as followers of Jesus and get away with it by their denial of second coming. And so Peter, of course, was like, like losing his mind over this and had to write letters to combat this teaching. And so he warns the church that, you know what, the second coming of the Lord and his judgment is an absolute guarantee. And that was the theme of really chapter 3. In our very final sermon together, uh, or should I say our last sermon together before we left off in the book, we spent our learn time, time learning about how the day of the Lord was going to unfold and what the events were actually going to look like and what was actually going to take place in order before he was going to come back. And if you missed that sermon, uh, it's on the website. Let's begin with verse 14, though, where Peter leaves off here. You'll notice in verse 14 that Peter picks up and continues with his teaching about the Lord's return, beginning with the word, therefore. He says, therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, these things, of course, being the, the coming of Christ in the new heavens and new earth, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Knowing that Christ is coming back here, uh, Peter makes it very clear. There's a way that he wants us to live in anticipation for his return. Really, the whole verse focuses on our behavior and on our conduct. We were to be known, here he says, as people of peace and really undefiled by the world. That's what spotless and blameless means, to be undefiled by the world. Now, when I was going through these verses, I was tempted to preach on these uh, to go through them in detail and talk about what that looked like. But to be honest, church, we've done so many sermons in this church in six years about character and how much it matters to God. I thought, you know what, you've heard from this pulpit enough about your conduct matters, your character matters. So I thought I'd take it a different direction because something else jumped out at me when I was studying this passage that I thought was really interesting. And it had to do with Paul and Peter's relationship. Based on verses 15 and 16. Really the message has to do with receiving correction for sin. Or being rebuked when you're a follower of Jesus. Not giving a rebuke. When you're the recipient of a rebuke. And how to respond. Just out of curiosity with a show of hands. How many of you enjoy it when people call you out for sin in your life? Oh, not one. Okay. That's, see, it's a very important message to hear, isn't it? <laughs> we have a lot to learn from Peter about himself in relation to Paul in this passage. Just so you know, my hand didn't go up either. So uh, we're all in the same boat. But we can see this incredible... Uh, well, actually, let's get into the story. Let's get into the story. I thought I'd give you a little history about Peter and Paul's relationship to see where I'm heading with the sermon and see how first 15 and 16 fit into the big picture. So I'm going to have to take a long warm-up swing at the, out in the dugout with my bat for about 15 minutes before I can actually get to the point and uh, hit the, try to hit a home run with you. Okay, so we're going to go do some warm-ups here. As you know, Peter and Paul were both appointed by Jesus to be apostles. Although, although they shared this as a commonality, their path to that position was very different. Remember that unlike Paul, Peter had no formal religious training. 
He was a fisherman from Galilee, and uh, Laurel and I were privileged enough to see his home, his hometown, and uh, where his little uh, fishing enterprise was. But he worked in a family business there. And one day, while he's going about his daily routine as a fisherman, this man Jesus shows up at his hometown of Capernaum and calls him into service. Now you remember the miracle that happened. And he says, cast your nets on this side. And Peter's like, we've done that all day. We're not going to do that again. He, but eventually listens to Jesus and the miracle of fish come in. And that he comes, so he, come, he puts his faith in Christ early on in his ministry based on this miracle. So this is important because um, at this point then, Peter leaves his career behind, untrained, and comes to faith early on and follows Jesus around in this three-year ministry where he receives instruction from Jesus Christ personally. And although there were 12 apostles called in total, Peter was really Jesus' main man. He was his right-hand man, the main spokesperson for the group. This is evident in Acts. You know, when after the death and resurrection of Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit, who's the man that stands up and gives the gospel message to all the Jews? Peter. The other 11 are there. Well, Judas was gone, mind you, but the other 10 were there. And, uh, and the person speaking out on behalf of Jesus Christ and what was going on with the coming of the Spirit was Peter. And really, Jesus had appointed Peter to be a, the apostle to the Jewish people primarily. The Jewish people primarily, although there were accents of Gentiles, hence the book of First and Second Peter, who were written to primary Gentile churches. But his ministry was centered out of Jerusalem, and he was appointed to the Jews. Paul had a very different story. His background was different from Peter. He was, he was highly educated. He went to the best seminary schools available in the Roman Empire, and he was trained by the number one guy in the whole, the number one prof, numero uno, basically, in the land of Palestine. This was a guy by the name of Gamaliel. He was known as the most uh, wise and important teacher of the day, the most influential Pharisee. So Paul had the best training possible. He went to the highest levels of college. And the result is he became a Pharisee himself, and he was able to rise to that position and being a religious teacher in the, in the area. And he wasn't just any Pharisee or any just religious leader. Uh, Paul was the jack daddy of all Pharisees. He was numero uno, just like Gamaliel. According to Paul's own testimony in different places in the New Testament, as well as fellow colleagues, fellow Pharisees, he was recognized as being head and shoulders above all his contemporaries in his religious devotion and zeal to the law. This was seen, of course, in his early persecution of the early Christian church. Because as a Pharisee, some believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but many didn't. And Paul, in his religious zeal and devotion to the law and God, was killing Christians and persecuting Christians because of their claims that he was the Messiah. They were committing blasphemy. And Paul was there when Stephen was stoned. He was in approval of that day. But like Peter, so very different backgrounds, but like Peter, this all changed for Paul in terms of when he met Jesus Christ, personally. In Acts 9, Christ appears to him on the road to, to, to uh, Damascus, and it leaves him broken. He's absolutely broken before the Lord. He can't believe that the person he was, the people he was persecuting on behalf of Christ were actually followers of Christ, and he was the one outside of God's covenant people. So Paul surrenders his life to Jesus in that moment, and he gets appointed as an apostle as well, but his ministry is primarily to the Gentiles. So Peter to the Jews, Paul to the Gentiles. Again, though, Peter had, sorry, Paul had access to the Jewish community. Every time he went to a Gentile community, the first place he went was the Jewish synagogue. He would virtually every time get thrown out the front window, 
sometimes land on his butt on the street, and then he'd get up and go off to the Gentile people. And that was Paul's pattern. So we have now Paul and Peter both active in ministry at the same time. But uh, Peter, or sorry, Paul later on in life. Now, interesting, even though they're both active in ministry at the same time around Israel, their paths never crossed for some time. They never crossed after Paul's conversion. If you're taking notes, you can write Galatians 1, verse 16 forward. Galatians 1, 16 forward. We learn here that Paul didn't actually meet Peter until three years after the road to the Damascus experience. This meeting took place in Jerusalem, and they hung out together for 15 days, so for two weeks. I'd love to have been a fly in the wall uh, that conversation. I bet you I, you and I would learn more in those 15 days with those two men than you could in basically 20 years of being a Christian. Basically, any question you had, one after the other just answered, answered, answered. Clear direction for life. But they were hung out for 15 days, three years after his conversion. After that visit then, Paul goes on missionary journeys through the Roman Empire, and Galatians 2, chapter 1, records it. Paul didn't see Peter again until 14 years later when he returned to Jerusalem. And this is important for us to know because I want you to see how Peter and Paul received one another. Look in Galatians 2, 7 through 9. This is after the, this is so three years visit. So three years have passed at the first visit. 14 years had passed and now a second visit. And this is what's said after the 14, 14 years later. Seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews, and recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James, Peter, and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. Okay, so what we have now is, even though Paul was, didn't hang out with the apostles in the three-year ministry, and didn't have the same uh, experience of living with Jesus and communing with Jesus and seeing his death and resurrection the same way, he recognized him as an equal, an equal and partner in ministry. They're on the same playing field. Peter extends Paul a right hand of fellowship despite his past, despite his, like where he came from and his background. So it's an, a total embrace. So we have two visits and a total embrace and a total equality in terms of being ministry partners. Now I want to explain why this is so significant, so significant, because in Galatians, there's an issue going on. What happened is, um, and there's a reason why Paul's recording this, saying that he had the right hand of fellowship. Jewish missionaries have come to the church at Antioch, which happens to be in Galatia. They've come to this church there, the city, and they're teaching the believers there that you have to be circumcised and observe the Mosaic law, as well as having faith in Jesus Christ to be belong to the people, people of God. So if you and I were in Antioch, they say, you know, uh, Evan, Rob, Stu, Kevin, everybody I can see off the top of my head, Darcy. If you know, in order to be a Christian, you have to observe the Mosaic Law, and you have to be circumcised in order to be a believer, in, as well as faith in Jesus Christ to belong to the people of God. The problem is, is beforehand, Peter, or Paul had preceded these Jewish missionaries, had come in, established a church there, and taught them that the law and circumcision were not necessary to belong to the people of God, only faith in Christ was. So it was their word against Paul's, there's a contradiction. And so his word is being undermined and his apostolic authority is being questioned. He's being questioned, these Jewish teachers are taking a foothold in the church and saying, Paul's a phony, he's a phony, his law's not right. And they called him a people pleaser. Why would they call him a people pleaser? Because 
It's, if you go to a Gentile community and you start teaching circumcision and Mosaic law, you'll lose people because they're not going to want to be part of your community. So they thought the reason why Paul's not teaching this is he wants to gain converts and gain pers- get, get a better personal reputation. Because it's easy not to teach the Jewish law because he'll gain more followers. And Paul says, not in the, not in the world, not in the, you're like not in the fattest world am I doing that? And why would I do that? Because uh, that would go against the gospel of Christ. And he writes there in Galatians chapter 2 that to, to refute his apostolic authority that actually when he actually met Peter and the boys back in Jerusalem, they extended him the right hand of fellowship. That's an important statement there because what he's saying is my law-free gospel that I was promoting was received and accepted by the Jewish apostles. The Jewish apostles affirmed my message, my gospel, and they said it was exactly the same as theirs. You see the importance now of these two visits. These two visits. Paul is saying to the Galatian church, I know you guys have heard about Peter and the boys, and they're the original disciples and the apostles back in Jerusalem. Just so you know, when they heard my gospel, they accepted mine as true. They extended me the right hand of fellowship. I'm not a people pleaser. I'm actually uh, I'm pleasing Christ by the message I have. Furthermore, in verse 6 of chapter 2, I didn't write it down in this PowerPoint, this is what Paul says. Those of high reputation, the apostles, he means, Peter and the boys, contributed nothing to my gospel. They contributed nothing. It's identical. And we see later in Acts chapter 15, Paul and Peter working together in defense of the gospel truth at the Jerusalem Council. They're in heavy discussion there about what's required to be saved. Is it faith in Christ and Mosaic law and circumcision, or is it just one or the other, or what is it? And both Peter and Paul, an active voice in Acts 15, proclaiming this truth about how one is put right with God. Now I realize I took a long time, again, in the dugout with my bat to swing and get warmed up. But it's necessary to understand the importance of this, considering a significant event that takes place next in the life of Peter and Paul. And I want you to turn there with me, because this is massive. Remember the context. Peter has said in his own mind, and, he's, and Paul has identified this as true, law, the, the, the law is not important to be a follower of Jesus, only faith in him. No observing uh, uh, ceremonial laws, no, it's not about circumcision, nothing. Look at what happens in Galatians 2, verse 11. And we're going to read to 14 together. But when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, which is of course the Lord's brother back in Jerusalem, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof. Fearing the party of the circumcision. In other words, fearing the Jewish teachers again, the same people that were accusing Paul of, of being, a, being a people pleaser. The rest of the Jews joined Peter in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in the presence of all, of the whole church, if you being, like, being a Jew live like the Gentiles, 
and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? This is an incredible event in the life of Peter, Paul, and the church in Antioch. Peter had received specific teaching from Jesus in a vision that told him that the Gentiles were part of God's covenant people. And the vision was of animals coming down, or animals on this giant blanket. He says, kill and eat. In other words, you can go and associate with Gentiles, eat their foods, be part of their customs, and you will not be defiled. He received a vision, and he understood the vision. Immediately, what does he do? He goes to Cornelius' house, he preaches the gospel, the people there have become saved, and the first Gentiles are included in, into God's covenant people. What happens here is years have gone by, and now Peter, these Jewish teachers from Jerusalem, come down to Antioch. They come and visit. Actually, they go up. I think they're really going up. They go up to Antioch, and they, have, they, they get there, and they start teaching that you have to follow the, the, the law to be truly right with God. Peter, out of fear for them, fear of men. Anybody here a fear of men? Put your hand up. <laughs> you, Peter, in good company with you. Fear of men. He... He goes back to the, the Judaizers' message out of fear of being rejected by them and starts disassociating with Gentile people. Could you imagine being downstairs, church? This is exactly what it's like. I preach to you that we're all equal in Christ regardless of race, skin color, background, customary beliefs. Someone comes in, like the bishop comes in with influence, and he sits in this congregation, and I know he wants to teach you that there's a distinction racially in our group about who's, equal, or who's value, more valuable to Christ. Out of pressure to that, I go downstairs and I disassociate with half of you because of the bishop being standing there. I would destroy you by doing that. I would, I would destroy this church. Because I would tell half of you that you aren't equal in the Lord's eyes in terms of being accepted by him based on your ethnicity, your background, your customary belief. I would, I would destroy it. And I would destroy it because I would be sitting in a room and I wouldn't be able to eat with you and associate with you because of your customary food laws and so on and so forth. The very man that extended a right hand of fellowship to, to uh, Paul saying our gospel is the same, there's no observing the law, is observing the law later on. And just so you know, this event occurs about uh, 10 years later. Or actually... Actually, strike that. I, I'll, I'll, address that I'll, I'll address that later when it actually happens. I just can't remember if I'm right on that. Anyway, but you get the point. So Peter's actions compromises the gospel. He creates a two-table fellowship. And he destroys everything Christ stands for. Christ died to create one family and to make one people of God. Peter, by his actions, is making two families under the people of God and making two distinctive, distinctive statements. And because of his power and authority and influence, others follow suit. I mean, look at Galatians 2. Peter extended to Barnabas and Paul, who are in ministry together, the right hand of fellowship. Barnabas is hanging out with Paul. Look what happens in Galatians chapter 2 years later. Barnabas is carried away and follows Peter in hypocrisy. He doesn't actually follow Paul. That's incredible. Now here's what's interesting. There's no record in the letter of Galatia how Peter responded to this review. There's none. There's no res response here in the, in the Galatian letter about how the church handled the situation and what their reactions were. And there's nothing here about what happened between Peter and Paul relationally. How did Peter review Paul after that? Honestly, church, if you were in Peter's situation, 
which, based on him publicly rebuking you in front of everybody and calling out for sin, would you want to maintain friendship with him? Knowing your personalities and what you have to work through, if you were publicly exposed in this church for sin, would you want to maintain relationship with the person who exposed you? No more hands going up? Okay. It's very difficult, right? Very, very difficult. I mean, just when your wife says to you, husbands, could you stop doing that, please? Or your husband stops. Just that alone, you're like, you get your back up and you want to fight. And it's not even like it's even over a preference. <laughs> Never mind a sin that's deep-rooted and public in front of everyone. So we're sensitive people. But you want to, this is why this is so important. Look at how Peter speaks about Paul in these next verses in 2 Peter. And I'm going, to, I'm going to suggest to you, more than a suggestion, I'm going to declare to you that there was a restoration of relationship and he was mature enough to receive the rebuke and thought highly of Paul afterwards. Go back to 2 Peter with me. Let's read verses 15 and 16. Uh, chapter... Second Peter chapter 3, verse, uh, well, let's start at 15, 3.15. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which some things are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do the rest of the scriptures, to their own destruction. I want to point out four things here of shows you what Peter thinks of Paul and the portrait he paints of this guy as being equal and an equal brother and someone he received a rebuke from. Maybe he didn't like it, but he received it for what it was, for truth. First of this, look at what he says about Paul's writings. He says that Paul's writings are on par with the rest of the scriptures. Paul's writings are on par, not subpar, not substandard, they're on par with the rest of the scriptures. He says, when he wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in these things, which are hard to understand, he says, he goes on and says, the unstable distort these things as they do the rest of the scriptures. In other words, that's the key word there, as the rest of the scriptures. In other words, Paul writes things that are hard to understand and people distort them. And there's also the rest of the scriptures which people write and also have, have troubles understanding and distort them as well. But he puts them on equal terms. They're on equal terms with uh, Paul in his letters. So what he's saying, that, it's a massive statement, because what he's saying then is that uh, when you read Hosea, and you read Isaiah, and you read, read uh, you know, Malachi and Exodus, all the Old Testament scriptures, that's on equal playing ground with what Paul writes. So that's really important, because he's uh, making a massive statement about the authority and the influence that he has, and how much value he has in what he writes. It's equal to the Old Testament canon. Now, what's interesting, um, even though they're on par, clearly here we can see that they're hard to understand. And we can relate to that, can't we? Ever, any of you uh, feel confident to come up here and teach on Romans 9 right now? Just word for word, just pull through it. How about the allegory of Sarah and Hagar in Galatians chapter 4? Would you feel free to come up here and just like nail it? 
I don't. I read Paul three, four, five, six, seven times in a row, and I still don't totally know what you're trying to say. And I spent hours painstakingly going through his letters trying to figure it out. Because he's not a very difficult, he's a very pretty difficult understanding. And what I love about this is look who's saying it, Peter. A guy who's trained by Jesus himself. He's an apostle, he's the right-hand man of God. And he's even saying, man, he's a tough dude to get. This is a guy who's, like, I would love to have since Peter's seminary training, three years under Jesus, and he's saying even we have troubles, like, sort of understanding what's been written there. He's a tough guy to understand. So don't feel bad if you read Paul, and don't quit reading your Bible just because he's difficult. Even Peter recognized, and the church has recognized, he's a tough dude. Okay, so first of all, his, his scriptures are on par with, oh, sorry, his letters are on par with the rest of Old Testament. Second, Peter understood that the scriptures that he wrote were full of wisdom. Full of wisdom. He says in verse 15, Just as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, also as in the, all his letters. When he says the wisdom given him, what he's really saying is this, Peter's writings were divinely inspired. Peter's, Paul's, Paul's writings were divinely inspired. We know this because of what Peter says in chapter 2, verse 1, verse 20. This is what he says here. He says, um, but know this, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. So this, this wisdom didn't come from Paul. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That's how Peter records how scripture is written. So when he says that the wisdom was given him, he recognizes this, God's hand is in this man's life. God's at work in this guy producing the letters that he does. So when he sends counsel to the churches, you listen to it because God's behind this. Again, think of the magnitude of what he's saying based on the rebuke he received. Because Peter opposed what the Lord stood for. And now he's affirming that Paul is divinely inspired and what he writes has a divine authority. This is super important. Third, the influence that Paul's writing had in the New Testament church. The influence that Paul's writing had in the New Testament church. When he says that he wrote letters, he says he wrote to you in verse 15, as also in all his letters. In all his letters. So Paul had clearly written a letter to the same churches that Peter had written before. These, these churches are in modern day Turkey. Okay? We have no record of these letters. They're not in the Bible. But clearly Paul had written to this congregation before Peter had. And he's reminding them that what Paul said was, uh, was the same as what Peter had been addressing them with. Again, equality and authority and influence. And all, and all the rest of the letters, again, there's other letters circulating through the Roman world. I don't know if you know this or not, but um, uh, you know, in Corinth, for example, we have two letters in the Bible. There's actually up to five letters probably written to the Corinthian church. Paul references two or three of them about these other letters in his books. So we, we have probably up to five letters that the Corinthians had, but we only have two in the canon. Um, so clearly Paul's letters are circulating throughout the Roman Empire and have a wide influence. And if you ever want to, this is just for fun and for free, if you ever want to have a talk with someone about how the New Testament was put together, there's really three criteria for what, how the New Testament was put together. And one of the three criteria was that, they had to, that the, letter, the letter had to be commonly circulated in the church back then. So it had to grab the foothold of the Roman Empire, and it was circulating throughout the, the whole the empire, and people were familiar with it. So you could go from church to church to church, and you hear the letter to the Corinthians, or you hear the letter to Galatians. 
And so it was widely used as authoritative. That was one of the ways and one of the reasons why the books in the Bible we have today are in them. So the other, so first and second Corinthians were probably more had more of a foothold in the Roman Empire and the churches than second, third, or the fourth, fifth, or third, fourth, and fifth letters to the Corinthians, and that's one of the reasons why they're in the Bible. So Paul has a massive influence in the New Testament church. But the key observation for us, church, that I don't want you to miss, is actually found in verse 15. Listen to, think about the rebuke that he received again, how publicly humiliating it is and how he let down Jesus Christ. And listen to what he says. Just as our beloved brother Paul, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul. He loved, he was a, uh, what I like about this is actually in verse 17, he says, you therefore beloved. So Peter's addressing the church as beloved people. He's loved, they're dear brothers and sisters. He loves them. And he calls Paul a dear brother, a loved brother. That is phenomenal language. Now again, this verse is where the 10 years comes in. Why this is so important is 2 Peter was written, 2 Peter was written 10 years after the rebuke occurred in Galatians. Or at Antioch, at Antioch. Okay, so Antioch occurs, public rebuke. 10 years later, Peter writes this. What does that tell you? That tells you he didn't allow any seeds of bitterness or anger or unforgiveness to be harbored against Paul. He was able to move on because he sided with truth. Another thing to think about, church, the letter to the Galatians would have been circulating throughout the Roman Empire by now. Peter's sin was being broadcasted across the world. You're in Corinth, you get the Galatian letter. Oh my goodness, you know what Peter did? We didn't know that in Antioch. You go to Colossae, you open up the letter to Galatians. Oh my goodness, do you hear what Peter did? The sin is publicly broadcasted. Genesis House, do you guys know what Peter did? <laughs> right? And yet, no resentment in 2 Peter over his sin being made public or the rebuke he got of the, or anything that was going on. He gives a glowing report of his brother Paul and sees him as an equal in influence and authority in Christ. Now there's the massive lesson for us, church. None of us like receiving correction for sin. Think about the last time you received it. You're probably not thinking in that moment, preach it, brother, preach it, sister. Give me more, I want to hear more. You're probably staring, I, I can see it, you're probably, your eyes are looking at the floor, or looking at the TV while the person's talking, and, you're, and your arms crossed, right? Like honestly, that's how, that's the fleshly reaction I want to give when I, when something's said to me. None of us like it. But a lesson we need to learn from Peter is that godly people need to see sin for what it is and receive correction when necessary in order to learn and to grow. Peter knew to side on truth, not on pride, when it came to receiving the correction. He saw that as a follower of Jesus, he had to side on truth and not on his pride when he received correction. And there's fruit that comes from this, according to Proverbs. Proverbs 6.23 For the commandments are like a lamp, instruction is like a light, and rebukes of discipline are like the road leading to life. Leading to life. 
Proverbs 19.20, listen to counsel and accept discipline that you may be wise the rest of your days. On the flip side, if pride, pride rises up, there's principles from Proverbs on that side. Proverbs 10.17, the one who heeds instruction is on the way to life, but the one who rejects rebuke goes astray. Can you imagine how astray Peter would have gone in terms of the community in Antioch if he had not received that rebuke and continued to function creating a two-tabled fellowship amongst the church, he would have split it and he destroyed everything Christ died for. Marriages can be broken up. Families destroyed. You can all sorts of things uh, because of the inability to handle or receive correction. Proverbs 15.10 Whoever abandons the right path will be severely disciplined. Whoever hates correction will die. Again, as follower of Jesus, we're going to have to resist pride. And there's going to be a real battle in their minds, right? It's going to be a mind battle. But you want to side on truth. You want to side on truth, no matter how much your flesh rises up. Side on truth that the sin that's pointed out is true to God's word and his character. I'll leave you with two lessons. Lesson one. It is right for followers of Jesus to receive correction from a fellow believer when we sin. It's right. It's the right thing to do. It's the right thing. You can make a yabbat list. My friend in Korea in university said, yabbats live in the forest, Andrew. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I will never forget that. Yabbats live in the forest. And we can read, yabbat, yabbat, yabbat. You, you do this and you do that. No, 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 no. We'll, we'll deal with my stuff later. You have a problem right now between you and God that needs to be dealt with. Let's not worry about the yabbat list. Someone might say, well, you don't have the right to judge me. That's not true. As Christians, we, have, we are called to judge one another. We are, it's only non-Christians we're not to judge. In 1 Corinthians 5.12, we are called to judge. However, there's a protocol, a protocol in judgment. Protocol. Galatians 6.1. I'll read it to you. Brethren. I'll, say, I'll use my language. Brothers or sisters in Christ. If any of you are caught in any sin. Those of you who are spiritual. Go and restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and therefore, thereby fulfill the law of Christ, which is love. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone, and not in regard to another, for each one will bear his own load. When we go to a brother and sister to point out sin, we're not to do it in a gloating, rejoicing way, going, ha ha, look at your life and how terrible it is, and look how good mine is, and... I'm sure glad I'm not you. That is the wrong attitude. You got, you're going to have sin in your life that needs to be dealt with if you go and do it that way. The purpose in correction is not to rejoice in the person that the person has fallen. The purpose is to rebuild and restore them. The word restoration here in Greek actually means to mend or, or to repair, which is like fishing nets. If you're a fisherman mending or repairing nets, you're to repair and restore the person like a fishing net. That's what you're supposed to do. It's edifying, building up words to restore them, not to build them down. That's the whole key. And that's why he says, examine yourself. 
You want to make sure that, you, you're, that your life before God is, is pure and clean and your motives are right before you go correct a brother or sister you see in sin. That's really important. It's like the communion we did today, self-examination before you take communion, self-examination before you go and correct a brother or sister. So again, we have the right to judge one another, but the judgment is not to make yourself feel good about yourself or to belittle someone, it's to restore them because you want what's best for them with the relationship with Jesus Christ. Second thing, this is our ending point. As followers of Jesus, we are not to be resentful and bitter towards those who expose our sin, but hold them in high regard. You know how much, you know how much, um, if it's done in the right way, like what I said in Galatians, you know how much courage it takes to go and correct someone? Like if, if honestly, it, it just takes no courage if you want to be self-righteous and point out people's flaws. But if you actually do the proper protocol, self-examination, and you actually do it for restoration, you should be nervous. Your heart should be pounding a little bit before you go talk to that person because you know there's a relationship at stake here. This is not a willy-nilly like, oh, this is like a, like a, like a trip to Callaway Park. This is like, like a serious issue and you should be a little bit nervous because you don't know how it's going to go. Right? That's, that's kind of, but anyway, another tangent. But when people come to us and, 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 and correct us, we have to side on the side of truth in those moments and, 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 and not hold resentment to them and be bitter, but hold them in high regard for having the courage to side with Jesus on this one. You want to know who your good friends are? The ones who love you enough to tell you when you go astray. And again, I'm not talking about when someone corrects, when you correct someone who corrects you. So like, you know, Laurel comes up to me and go, Andrew, you know, you're this and that and the other. And I go, yeah, but you know what? You have this and that and the other. Like, we don't go back and forth. That's not correcting properly. There's no self, that's self-defense. That's pride rising up. We have to do it out of care and love for the other person. And so again, Peter clearly holds Paul in high regard because he sees him as siding on the side of Jesus Christ. And it was ultimately for the best, the best thing for the kingdom of God and for the relationship in the church and the community was that Peter was exposed. Peter, in the, in the end, understood that and sided with truth and so understood that Paul had no option but to do that in his life. Let's have a time of discussion.